Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is St. Michael's, Maryland. St. Michael's is a small town of just over a thousand residents on the beautiful eastern shore of Maryland. The town's name comes from the Episcopal Parish that was established there in 1677, long before the town was incorporated in 1804. The town's earliest industry was shipbuilding, but now boasts a popular marina, bed and breakfast, shops, and restaurants. In 2007, Coastal Living Magazine named St. Michael's number eight on its list of the top 10 romantic escapes in the USA. But almost 10 years before this accomplishment, in 1998, a romantic Valentine's getaway included a murder mystery dinner theater that had a very unexpected ending. Steve Rico had grown up in State College, Pennsylvania, and was in the seventh grade when he met his best friend, Mike Miller. The two men went to college together at Penn State, and it was Mike who introduced Steve to Kim. Kim worked at a steakhouse with Mike's then-girlfriend, Maureen. Mike and Maureen set up a double date with Steve and Kim, who hit it off immediately and started dating steadily after that. Steve fell head over heels in love with Kim immediately. When Steve and Kim were married in March of 1989, Mike was Steve's best man, and Maureen was Kim's maid of honor. When Mike and Maureen in turn were married a few months later, Steve was Mike's best man, and Kim was Maureen's matron of honor. Within a year of their marriage, Steve and Kim welcomed daughter Anna. After college, Steve Rico and Mike Miller actually took up the same occupation, the superintending and maintaining of golf courses. In the years after Penn State... Although Steve and Mike took different career paths working at different golf courses, they both wound up in Maryland in the early 1990s. So the nice thing was they were able to maintain a close friendship and their wives still had an opportunity to socialize with each other. Kim Rico became a certified surgical technologist assigned to the operating room, first at Holy Cross Hospital for two years before taking a new job at Suburban Hospital in Maryland. Included in her responsibilities as a surgical tech in the operating room was the disposing of unused medicines and drugs following an operation. Kim was friendly and well-liked and developed close relationships with her co-workers. In January 1998, Steve had telephoned Michael and told him he was looking for somewhere to go with Kim to spend a romantic evening. Mike worked at Harbortown Resort and Golf Course and knew that they were having a Valentine's getaway weekend with a murder mystery dinner theater and suggested it as a possibility. Steve thought it was a great idea, so Mike worked with his colleagues at Harbortown to make certain that the Ricos would have one of the better cottages that had a view of the river. Mike and Maureen Miller even offered to babysit for Steve and Kim's now nine-year-old daughter, Anna, although Steve and Kim were able to leave Anna behind with a family member. The Ricos arrived at Harbortown at about 3 p.m. on Valentine's Day, February 14th, and were checked into Cottage 506. On their arrival, they were presented with a bottle of champagne, which was customary for Valentine's Day. At approximately 7 p.m., they went to the dining room and to the dinner theater production of The Bride Who Cried. The Bride Who Cried was a murder mystery about a groom who was poisoned and died at his wedding reception. Members of the audience were encouraged to participate and try and solve the crime. Some of the members of the audience, though, seemed to be almost too enthusiastic and over-the-top, 
than a dinner theater play would warrant. Several area lawyers took part in the production, including Talbot County Assistant State's Attorney Henry Dove, who played himself. Henry's date for the evening was a woman named Caroline George, who was a parole and probation agent for the state of Maryland, and they actually were sat at the Rico's table. Stephen Kim left the dinner theater after the murder mystery concluded and returned to their cottage together at approximately 10.30 p.m. Three hours later, Kim Rico entered the lobby of the resort and told the manager that her room was on fire. She had already called 911. Elaine Phillips, the night duty manager, and her cousin Philip Parker kicked into action. Kim could not communicate her room number, so a member of the hotel staff checked the register, found out she was in room 506, and Elaine called 911. The 911 operator confirmed that they had already received a call about the fire. Elaine and her cousin Philip ran to cottage 506. The front door was locked, so Philip ran around to the sliding glass door. In addition to the obvious smoke that was in the Rico's room, Philip saw feet and legs on the floor near the bed. Crawling into the smoke-filled room, he found the body of Steve Rico lying on its back between two twin beds. With help from Elaine, Philip was able to drag the body onto the porch. When they got Steve out onto the patio, they realized he was dead. His body, clad in a t-shirt and pajama pants, was badly burned from the mid-chest area upward. Investigators at the scene saw that he had been lying on pillows that were the source of the fire's origin. Kim Rico told Maryland State Trooper Elsie, who had been one of the police officers to respond to the 911 call, that after leaving the dinner theater, she and Steve had purchased four bottles of beer from the hotel bar and gone back to their room. Despite what she said was a pre-Valentine's Day covenant with her husband that they would refrain from having sex during the weekend getaway, he began pressuring her for sex and they got into an argument. Because she did not want to keep arguing with her husband, she left in their car to drive around and clear her head. She told investigators that when she left, Steve was smoking a cigar, reading a Playboy magazine, and drinking a beer. That's how uh, my husband and I spend our Valentine's days. (laughs) (laughs) He does his thing and I drive away. I mean, isn't that like just perfect? (laughs) Kim said that she left the Harbortown Resort and drove toward Easton to visit her friends, Mike and Maureen Miller. She became lost, however and had to stop and ask several people for directions. She told police that she was not familiar with Easton and could not find the Millers' home. Kim also said that after deciding not to go to the Millers, she had to ask for directions even to get back to St. Michael's. Kim said she arrived back at the Harbortown Resort at almost 1.30 a.m. As Kim went back to their room, she realized she had forgotten to take the room key with her, so she walked around to the deck area at the back of the room remembering that the sliding glass door at the rear of the unit had been opened earlier in the evening. As she pushed it open, she was met by a wall of thick smoke. She said she reached inside to feel for a light switch, but with no success. She then ran to the front of the unit and began knocking on a number of other doors and screaming for help, but received no response. At that point, she jumped into her car and drove to the main lobby, using her cell phone to call 911 while on the way. In the lobby is where she ran into Elaine Phillips. Deputy Fire Marshal Michael Mulligan was assigned to investigate the case. Mulligan observed that the physical damage to the hotel room was minimal. 
The room itself was well enough insulated that the fire didn't get sufficient oxygen in order to spread. Mulligan said it appeared that the fire had started on the floor where Steve was lounging. It looked like a cigar had started the fire. He had found a package of eight cigars with one missing. But immediately post-fire, he had not been able to find any evidence of a cigar butt or ashes. Okay, just really quickly going back to the part where Steve was lounging on the floor of a hotel room. Who does that? I don't know. <laughs> was he rolling around on the bedspreads too because it wasn't enough germs on the floor? <laughs> it's like I go to a hotel room and I wear socks and I don't even have OCD. You know those hotel rooms are scummy. Exactly. Like, who lounges on a pillow between two twin beds on a hotel room Okay, floor? so next time we go to a hotel, like when we do a tour for this, we're lounging every time and we're going to see just how sick we get. <laughs> well, maybe not how sick, but how many antibiotics right. we're training. <laughs> we would be building immunities. Exactly. On the day after Steve's death, Kim went to Steve's parents' house in State College, Pennsylvania, and spoke with his sister, Jennifer. She told Jennifer she didn't really have any opinions about decisions that needed to be made for the funeral, except that she wanted Steve to be cremated in accordance with his wishes. Which totally makes sense, because I know when both my parents died, we really needed people to help us. It was too overwhelming to do it ourselves. Oh, yeah. I can imagine there are certain important things that you want to have occur, but all like the little details you just don't care about. Right. Talking about details, do you remember how... I was standing over your mom's casket with you and your sister, and I did not like how they had put her. You weren't with us. You had said, so a little background story. When my mom had died, she didn't want to be buried with her engagement diamond, just with the setting. Yes. And so we had to have the diamond removed. And then, of course, my sister and I went back to go put the ring back on her finger. But obviously things like her joints were a little more swollen. I'm guessing it was part of the embalming process. And so we couldn't get it past the first knuckle. Yes, which did not please me. Right. So <laughs> Kathy comes up to us afterwards and says, oh, my gosh, somebody at the funeral home didn't put your mom's ring on all the way. So I jammed it down on her finger. <laughs> I fixed it. Not knowing that we were the ones who hadn't done it. Yeah. Well, it looked a lot better after I was done with it. I just want to let you know. <laughs> I have no doubt you're right. And I'm sure I know that mom's happy you did that. She exactly. Was, she didn't like her squeamish daughters. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I handled that. In a Baltimore Sun article written by journalists Tanoa Morgan and Rafael Alvarez five days after Steve's death, Steve's mother is quoted as saying that the fire was an accident and that, of course, the family was all very upset. One week after Steve's Valentine's Day death, Kim had a follow-up interview with Trooper Elsie in Easton, Maryland. She asked him for an update on the medical examiner's report. Since the assumed cause of death was a very straightforward case of smoke inhalation from an accidental room fire, Kim's curiosity raised eyebrows. After this interview, Kim spent the night in Easton with Mike and Maureen Miller, her close friends. The next morning after Kim got up, she asked Maureen to call three of her friends and find out what, if anything, they had said to the police. Late at night on February 23rd, 1998, so nine days after Steve's death, an ambulance was called to the home of Mike and Maureen Miller for a possible drug overdose. When the ambulance and local police officers arrived at the Miller's home, they found Maryland State Troopers already on scene serving a warrant to search Kim's home and car. As police were searching her car, Kim went upstairs in the Miller's home and took an overdose of a prescription medication. She was taken to the hospital 
which is where detectives served an arrest warrant two days following Kim's attempted suicide. Kim was formally charged with first-degree murder and first-degree arson. Police investigators had concluded that Kim killed her husband, Steve, and then set fire to their hotel room. She wasn't eligible for bail because she was charged with a capital crime. After what her lawyer, Harry Walsh, confirmed was a suicide attempt, Kim was sent to a hospital to undergo a psychiatric examination, and it was determined that she was fit to stand trial. So what did investigators find that led them to believe Kim had killed her husband? Well, it started with Dr. David Fowler, who was Maryland's deputy chief medical examiner. He performed the autopsy on Steve Rico and was tasked with confirming that Steve had died in the fire. When Dr. Fowler got blood results back, he found a normal amount of carbon monoxide in Steve's system, which was extremely unusual for somebody who died in a fire. Dr. Fowler also did not find any signs of smoke inhalation in Steve's airways or lungs. This led Dr. Fowler to conduct two more tests on tissue to make sure that he had not made an error. Both tests showed the same thing. Steve Rico was not breathing at the time of the fire. Deputy State Fire Marshal Michael Mulligan also discovered facts that did not add up to an accidental smoker's fire. Mulligan tried to find the source of the ignition for the fire and was able to eliminate natural causes that may have started the fire, such as lightning or spontaneous combustion. He also eliminated accidental causes, such as an electrical fire, friction, or a spark. Mulligan also knew that motels and hotels typically used bedding items that had been treated with a flame retardant material, so he conducted an experiment to see if a lit cigar could start a fire in the motel room. Okay, so this makes sense to me, but I never knew that they did that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't know that either. So I did not know che- that either. How many chemicals are we sleeping on? <laughs> in addition to the dirty carpet. <laughs> exactly, and the bedspread. I, I have no idea, but yeah, I didn't know that either. Mulligan bought the same brand of cigars, used a pillow, a pillowcase, and a sample of the bedspread, but couldn't start a fire using the cigar. He tried it several times, and although there were burn marks, at no point did any of these items actually catch fire. Accelerant-sniffing fire dogs were brought in and alerted to a flammable liquid on the bedroom floor at the foot of the bed where Steve was found, but chemical tests on the debris from the room could not identify what the liquid was. So none of that would be admissible in court, and the dogs sniffing it would not be admissible. But they should be. (laughs) Dogs are smart. They are. Even without evidence of the liquid accelerant, the state fire marshal ruled that the fire was arson. As it turns out, this romantic Valentine's Day weekend didn't turn out the way Steve was hoping it would. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Jeez, really? (laughs) I'd say that's the understatement of the universe. (laughs) Just continue. (laughs) So, after nine years of marriage, clearly all was not happy in paradise. Clearly. In fact, when Steve called Mike about weekend suggestions, he let Mike know that the marriage was struggling, and he really hoped the time away from all of their responsibilities would rekindle the flame. The agreement not to have sex over the weekend, though, I really believe that had been Kim's idea. I think so. Police detectives began looking further into Kim's alibi of being out driving for more than three hours. Remember, 
Kim had told investigators the night of Steve's death that they had gotten into a fight, so she had left the room with the intent of going to Mike and Maureen's house in Easton, but got lost, arriving back at the resort sometime before 1.30 a.m. Now, Easton is no more than a 15-minute drive from St. Michael's, so a 30-minute round trip, and three hours seems to be a really long time to be lost in such a small area. For sure. This reminds me of episode number four, Joplin, Missouri, because do you remember Doyle Kelly used this same excuse when he killed his wife, Christy? I do remember that because he said he was going to a barbecue and it was a small town and he said he got lost for two hours. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of low IQ people getting lost. There really are. (laughs) And detectives discovered that not only had Kim driven by herself to the Easton home of Mike and Maureen just 10 weeks before Steve's death, but Kim's brother, Michael, who also lived in Easton, lived just two blocks away from the Millers. Kim was also very close to her brother, and it was actually Mike who was called to the scene at Kim's request. During Kim's explanation of the missing three hours to state trooper Elsie, she said that Steve drank a bottle of champagne before dinner, and he drank a lot during and after dinner. Remember we mentioned earlier that a Talbot County assistant state's attorney was seated at the same table with the Ricos throughout dinner, and he actually testified that Steve had had one beer. The bartender who had served drinks at the table said that the bar bill for the two Ricos was $5.51, which was the price of two beers. Ah, the days of yore when (laughs) beers were cheap. (laughs) Detectives interviewed Steve and Kim's family and friends and learned that despite Kim telling investigators that Steve was smoking a cigar when she left the motel room after their argument, everyone insisted that Steve never smoked. Sergeant Joseph Gamble with the Maryland State Police tried to locate the store from which the cigars had been purchased. He went to 26 stores in the vicinity of the Rico's home. Dang. I know, that blew my mind, actually. And then he found the clerk who was able to identify Kim as the person who bought the beer and cigars. No way. Yeah, talk about a foot soldier. So I guess he asked the clerk, how do you remember Kim? And the clerk said, oh, she had really pretty red hair. And so I asked her... Where did she get her hair dyed? (laughs) (laughs) She didn't like that, did she? (laughs) And Kim got really upset saying it was natural. And so the clerk remembered Kim because her reaction was super over the top. And it was unusual for a woman to be buying cigars. I understand that part. exactly. So the police were able to match the price sticker on the cigars found in the motel room with the ones at the liquor store. That is some serious investigating. I know. I know. That's a man who means business. Anyway, after all of this information, along with the conversations with Kim's close friends and co-workers, obviously more suspicion fell on Kim. Kim Rico switched attorneys, so the judge pushed off the trial date, which was supposed to begin in October, eight months after Steve's murder. Kim's new attorneys asked the judge to switch prosecutors, basically recuse the prosecutors, because one of the attorneys had been involved in the mystery dinner theater production and sat at the same table with the Ricos. So this particular attorney would have had knowledge regarding the behavior of the Ricos at dinner, the level of drinking that occurred that night, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so the judge basically said, yep, you're right, you're bounced from the case, and the judge assigned a special prosecutor. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. 
And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Trial began on Monday, January 11, 1999, almost one year after the death of Steve Rico. After spending the first day questioning 150 potential jurors, at 6 p.m., the jury was finally selected. Nine women and three men would determine Kim Rico's fate. An article by journalist John Greep with the Star Democrat said that trial began with testimony from the deputy state fire marshal, Michael Mulligan. Mulligan told the jury what we had talked about before. Remember, he had ruled out several possible causes, lightning strikes, combustion, and eliminated some accidental causes, including electrical fire. But before the defense lawyers could object, Mulligan said that he thought the fire was deliberately set, which the judge directed jurors to ignore that statement. So, Kath, why was that struck? Basically, the judge said, you cannot make the ultimate determination that this fire was deliberately set. The defense argued that Mulligan, even though he is an expert, could not determine that the fire was deliberately set because he had not exhausted all potential options of how the fire had been set. But that's unrealistic. Well, I mean, whatever. It's the jury's job to determine the facts. And if she is charged with arson, having an expert give an opinion that the fire was deliberately set kind of takes away their job as the fact finders. So it's such a critical piece of information that unless you can show that every single source of possibility was examined, you don't get to say it. And so I think it was actually a good ruling on the judge's part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, not me. Exactly. I disagree. He was an expert. <sighs> if you recall, the day following the murder, Kim asked Maureen Miller to find out what her other friends had told the police. It turns out that Kim had reason to be worried because she knew she had told her friends too much. According to court records, several of Kim's close friends were fully apprised of the growing problems in the marriage 
and testified that Kim told them how unhappy she was. She didn't want to be married to him anymore. She said that he was verbally abusive, never wanted to go out, and never did anything around the house. She said she had to do everything. Kim had been discontent with the state of her marriage, but it wasn't until November 1997 that she began telling her friends she wanted a divorce. So remember, he dies in February of 98. So just a few months before his death, she's telling him this. Jennifer Gowan was a co-worker of Kim's at Holy Cross Hospital. She was to be married in November of 97, and Kim was her matron of honor. One week before the wedding, Kim hosted a bachelorette party for Jennifer, and several days later, Kim threw Jennifer a shower at Kim's home. The next day was Thanksgiving, and the wedding party spent most of the day at the Rico home. Enter the other man. Brad Winkler was the 23-year-old cousin of the bride-to-be and a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps assigned to the Pentagon. Though 10 years younger than Kim, Brad immediately caught Kim's eye and he showed up at every event during the week leading up to the wedding. Brad had volunteered to be the house sitter for the honeymooning couple, and while they were away, Kim went over on a daily basis. Brad testified that the affair began around this time. As it turns out, Kim was not that discreet and told many of her friends that she was having an affair because of her dissatisfaction with her marriage. It was the testimony of one of Kim's former co-workers at Holy Cross Hospital that showed just how desperate she had become to get out of her marriage. Kenneth Burgess, a surgical tech like Kim, testified about the conversation he'd had with Kim. Kenneth had, coincidentally been convicted of welfare fraud in Virginia about 12 years earlier and may have seemed to Kim like a promising recruit for someone who was willing to break the law. Wow. (laughs) About six weeks before Steve's death, Kim told Kenneth that she wanted him to kill her husband. He thought it had to be some sort of a joke, but when he saw that she was serious, he immediately said that he was not interested and wanted nothing to do with it. He tried to convince Kim that she was just overreacting to being unhappy in her marriage. But Kim went on to ask if he knew somebody who might be willing to kill her husband, and she mentioned the figure $50,000 as the contract price. After it became clear that Kenneth Burgess had no intention of getting involved, Kim urged him to forget about it and not tell anybody about their conversation. Is that the secret way to make it go away? Yeah, I guess. Kenneth Burgess said in court that he made a flip remark to Kim saying, you work in an operating room, you could just put him to sleep. Then Kim kept up her chattiness and told a few close friends about her plan to kill her husband so that she and her daughter could live life the way Kim wanted them to. Kim's longtime friend from State College, Rachel McCoy, provided key testimony for the prosecution. Two weeks before Steve's death, Kim made several frantic calls to Rachel, begging her to come to Kim's house. When Rachel arrived shortly before midnight, Kim had been drinking and was very distraught, talking more about how it would be easier if Steve was dead. Rachel testified that Kim told her that there was a drug that would paralyze Steve, and then Kim could burn the room down around him. Rachel tried to poke holes in the plan, but Kim told her that the drug was untraceable and she would get away with murder. The night that Kim explained her plan... Kim had gone upstairs to go to the bathroom and did not return. Rachel went upstairs to check on her and found Kim standing over the bed, staring at Steve. Rachel was actually shocked Steve was at home that night and persuaded Kim to come downstairs and calm down. Rachel feared that if she hadn't been there that night, Kim would have killed Steve. 
Rachel finally sent Kim upstairs to bed and waited for another 20 minutes to make certain that nothing else happened. That was Rachel's last communication with Kim before the fateful events on Valentine's Day. Hey, Rachel, why don't you send the memo to Steve that his wife wants to kill him? And 20 minutes was sufficient? Right. Like, I, I, I don't understand this. How did she, she laid it out for her. You know, it's when I read about this, I tried thinking like, okay, which one of my friends would trust me with this information and, and I would be remain silent? The answer is none. None. Like, uh, I, I, you I'm know really, what I mean? I'm really sad to hear that. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> but it's like you're sincerely believing that somebody is going to kill their spouse and you remain silent? And even if you don't know the husband that well, don't want to tell the husband or, or wife, go to the police. Tell somebody. Yeah, exactly. Tell somebody. So great for her feeling all good about the 20 minutes saving Steve's life. Yeah, two weeks later he was dead. And if you told somebody, there was a window of time where that could have been prevented. Totally. It's Rachel's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel. Other evidence was admitted to show that Kim was the beneficiary of two separate life insurance policies on Steve that were worth 450000 which, according to Kathy with a K, is three quarters of a million dollars in 2022 money. And that's important to me. I know. You always do that. Every time we have a podcast with money, you're like, <laughs> let me put it in perspective. One of the policies, a $250,000 smoker's policy, was purchased by Kim on Steve's life in the months leading up to his death. That's always bad. I know. One of Kim's friends testified that Kim told her the downside to divorce was that Steve might get depressed or angry enough to kill himself and the insurance money wouldn't pay if it were suicide. You know, that's also quite the ego on her. Yeah. Like, Kim, you might not have been that much of a catch. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, clearly she wasn't. She might have been okay. Kim first made mention of the drug succinylcholine to her friend Jennifer. Now, remember, this is Kim's co-worker and the cousin of Brad, the guy she was having an affair with. Okay, wait. Succinylcholine? Yeah. Episode three, Kathy Augustine. Okay, you remember all the episode numbers. I do not. But I, I definitely do. remember. I know. You do. I definitely remember Kathy Augustine. But he was a critical care nurse. Yeah. And she's a surgical tech. So anyway, Kim knew that succinylcholine was typically used during surgery to relax muscles before putting an intubation tube down a patient's throat. Jennifer told the jury that Kim had access to succinylcholine because she was a surgical tech. Multiple experts in the medical field testified as to the effects of the drug, specifically if it's injected directly into a muscle. It is extremely lethal, extremely fast-acting, and ultimately untraceable. During trial, Dr. David Fowler reiterated what he had said earlier, which is that Steve did not die from a fire. He further testified that he was also able to eliminate all of the normal causes for a natural death, such as heart disease, something like that. Significantly, there was no alcohol present in Steve's bloodstream. Because of the reports that Steve had been drinking, Dr. Fowler had run a second specimen of tests to check the urine as well as the liver. The results never changed. Kath, I read somewhere that before Kim was arrested, when she was being interviewed by the trooper, mm-hmm. he said, hey, by the way, his blood alcohol level is 0.0. How do you account for that? Because she was telling everybody how drunk and how sloppy he was. Right. And apparently he was like, she was speechless. She was like, that can't be. And had no explanation for right. him. Right. Yeah. Honestly, though, she's a nurse or a surgical tech. 
Why would she think that if there wasn't any alcohol in the system, it would all of a sudden develop? Maybe she didn't realize they tested for that at autopsies. Mm, I don't know. True. But there is actually a great quote in here that he testified to on the stand. Dr. Fowler stated, quote, I have a person who's allegedly drunk, but he's not drunk. I have a person who allegedly dies because of a fire. He did not die because of a fire. He was dead before the fire. And there is no physical reason for him to have died. I now also have no drug levels. I don't have heroin or cocaine or anything else that I can blame it on. I don't have an overdose of medications. I have nothing from the obvious chemical analysis to explain this person's death, end quote. So that's why he was pointing to the sucks. Right. So he said because of this, his focus did turn to succinylcholine. And although he did not find any puncture marks, he testified that the needles were so fine that you usually don't see the punctures anyway. Mm -hmm. But any bruising that would typically occur around an injection site, because he had died... Like because he died so quickly. Right. He wouldn't have seen it. But also remember his entire body from the chest up was burned. He would not have been able to see it at that point. Like assuming it was in that area. Exactly. Prosecutors also looked to the actions of Kim on the night of the fire and opined that her behavior on discovering the fire in her room was not the behavior of a reasonable person. They were basically saying she supposedly returns to the motel at 1.20 in the morning to find her husband trapped in a burning room. And she's screaming and yelling and running and banging on doors. But nobody else woke up. Which is crazy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I also read that her arrival in the lobby was bizarre because she pulled up to the lobby turned her lights off, shut her door, walked into the lobby. Instead of, if we were doing that, you're going to screech in, you're going to throw your car in park, you're going to hope it's in park and not driving forward, and you're going to run in. And you're going to run in screaming, my room's on fire, you know? Right. Yeah, she did none of that. Yeah, she basically walked in and said, I'd like to speak with somebody who works here. And then they go, (laughs) how can I help you, ma'am? And she's like, my room's on fire. And then they went through this conversation about the room being on fire she was non-responsive to the room number. And then at the end of it, they go, is anyone in the uh, is anyone in the room? And she goes, yes, my husband. I know, seriously. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. So I guess all the employees. And once she said her room was on fire, the people in the lobby freaked out. They were trying to scramble and help. Yeah, they like they kicked into action and later basically said that you'd think that she would have mentioned her husband was in the room before she was asked or that. She would offer that her room was on fire before somebody asked her what the problem was. Well, and I got to tell you, I was actually surprised with this, too, because she had said she called 911. And after reading this, I wondered if she did, except for the fact that Elaine did call and confirm that somebody had called 911 already. Exactly. On Friday, January 17th, 1999, almost one year after the death of her husband, Kim Rico was found guilty of first degree murder and first degree arson. Two months after being convicted, Judge Horn sentenced Kim to life for the murder charge and 30 years for arson. Her attorneys immediately filed an appeal of the conviction and sentencing. In May 2000, the Maryland Court of Appeals upheld Kim's conviction. Okay, Kath, when I started looking into this case and I read the Court of Appeals case, I felt like I was being punked. I did too. I felt like somebody had taken this judge's ruling and then just sort of taken poetic license with it to make it humorous. Right. But no, this is... It made me question was whether it was actually a court file. I called my sister, who's an attorney, Mm -hmm. and asked her, like, am I wrong about this site? Is this not what the court record is? Right. Okay, so here, here is why. So basically what this judge did is he wrote this opinion interweaving 
quotes from Shakespeare and Pride and Prejudice, and it, it was amazing. Basically, classic literature. It was it was an incredible opinion. So I read an article, and um, a woman named Amy Silva from the Capitol News Service in Maryland wrote an article on this judge. This judge, the author of the opinion, was Judge Charles E. Moyland Jr., and she wrote this article when he was retiring. This uh, appellate case that he authored was his swan song because his retirement was pending. Which actually that makes sense then because what my sister had said was is that you will see this from time to time with somebody who's retiring. Sometimes they'll make it rhyme. Sometimes they'll have the first word of every sentence spell out some sort of phrase. Yes, yes. So it's kind of amusing. But anyway, so the journalist Amy Silva interviewed Susan Clark. Susan Clark said she was an administrative aide who had been taking dictation from Judge Moylan for 19 years. She said Moylan won't touch a computer and doesn't use any notes. She said he's amazing. It just comes right out of his head. So when asked about his authorship of this opinion, Judge Moylan said, quote, some cases just write themselves. And he described this case as a British-style Agatha Christie murder. He's right. Yeah. Apparently, he developed his love of the English language and literature from his parents, who were both teachers, and his father was also a judge. So I want to read the very beginning paragraph where I was like, is this real? Okay. So this is what the judge writes. Taking that version of the facts most favorable to the state, what unfolds is the melodrama of an estranged wife desperate to free herself from a marriage gone stale, leaving a trail of false clues and staging her husband's death so as to make it appear a random accident. As with the murder of Gonzago in Hamlet or Pyramus and Thisbe in A Midsummer Night's Dream, there is within this real-life drama a play within a play. In the real-life drama, the husband was lured to the scene of his fatal poisoning by the reconciliatory promise of a romantic St. Valentine's Day weekend at the Harbortown Resort in St. Michael's. A highlight of the getaway weekend was a dinner theater murder mystery which the dinner guests were invited to solve. That play within the play was called The Bride Who Cried. Our real-life drama may well have been called The Widow Who Lied. (laughs) (laughs) But he he quotes Shakespeare throughout. That's amazing. I know that you have some of the quotes that you thought were awesome. I do. Some of them were just so good. When the appeal talked about succinylcholine, he started that section with, O true apothecary, thy drugs are quick, which is a line from Romeo and Juliet, Act 5, Scene 3, which makes perfect sense. And it cracks me up how he actually quoted the scene. Right. At some point when he starts getting into the fact that she is unhappy with things, he writes, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, which is the opening line of Anna Karenina. Oh, nice. Yeah. And he writes that. (laughs) My favorite, I actually really like the the drugs are quick, but my other one was when Kim was talking to her friend Jennifer and saying, if I thought I could get away with it, I'd kill him tomorrow. The judge started the section with the game's afoot, which is a line from Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1. He truly had a good sense of humor. Yeah, he did. And he what he writes when Brad, the 23-year-old Marine, comes onto the scene, it says, at the very outset of that festive week, there appeared at the edge of the crowd like Darcy and Pride and Prejudice, or Rhett Butler's Dark Stranger from Charleston, an enigmatic new figure. (laughs) 
And then the best one with that line was when they started having sex. Remember, we talked about November of 97 being when things had changed. Right. The judge wrote, the smoldering tinder of late November burst into flame in early December. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, Kim had told many of her friends that she was having sex with this guy, Brad. And so she tells one of them, you know what? I'm not going to marry this guy. It's just about the sex. So the judge writes... Why I can smile and murder while I smile. <laughs> and Henry the Fourth, Part Three, Act Three, Scene Two. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like he knew that. Like he he not only knew the lines but could cite them from memory. That's what it sounds like based on the yeah. interview with his his administrative assistant. Let me give you one more line that I really enjoyed. It was when Kim was freaking out and called Rachel to her house, and that was the night that Rachel believed that she had stopped Kim from murdering her husband. The judge writes, oh, murderous slumber, Julius Caesar, act four, scene three. (laughs) I mean, this judge is awesome. He is. Yeah. Back to the case. Yeah, exactly. In 2004, Kim appealed to the Maryland Supreme Court arguing ineffective assistance of counsel, which the court denied. And those judges weren't very funny. Sadly, the last weeks of the Rico marriage were filled with false hope by Steve and false witness by Kim. Ostensibly, they mutually committed themselves to an effort at reconciliation. Steve genuinely gave himself to the effort, going to counseling, calling Kim on the phone just to say hi, and making an effort to be more communicative and affectionate. A few days before Steve and Kim went to Harbortown to rekindle their marriage, Steve wrote in a journal, quote, Life at home is improving, and I am looking forward to Valentine's weekend at Harbortown with Kim. She called twice today and said I love you without me saying it first. I was very happy. Kim and I have not made love yet, and I want to, but I will wait as long as it takes. I love her. I believe I know what being in love really is. We have been married nine years, but I feel like we are just starting dating. End quote. For Kim, committing to reconciling was a charade. On February 13th, the night before she and Steve were to leave on their Valentine's weekend getaway, Kim, by contrast, made a trip to the house that Brad Winkler, the man she was having an affair with, shared with his aunt. Brad was out of the state on assignment, and Kim wanted to leave her Valentine's Day gifts to him in his bedroom. The note accompanying the gifts reads, Brad, I really wanted to give you all these gifts in person, but I guess the Pentagon had a different idea. I am so proud of what you do, so I'll just go on missing you. Have a nice weekend at home, baby. I look forward to seeing you soon. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. I love you so very much. Hugs and kisses, Kim. Kim Rico is currently incarcerated at the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women. And so she should be. Exactly. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you liked us. And hopefully you did if you stayed this long. Exactly. Tell a friend. And follow us on our social media channels. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast. C.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.